I don't know about you, if you slept anything like me, uh, you would be coming into this morning session slightly tired. Uh, and yet, what a refreshing morning. Oh, thank you for the reminder. Jono there. I need to put this on too. Um, super refreshing morning, isn't it? You know, I like to, to go and look at the Athanasian Creed, even with all the uh, strangeness of the language, just taking us back to what we've been looking at all weekend where we started on Friday night, that uh, before in the beginning, God is love. Uh, if we get nothing else, if you can remember those three words, God is love, uh, then you've got the Trinity. You know, he's fundamentally, foundationally, relationally, before he does anything else, how exciting is that? And then to hear uh, Dave and Nicole speak of how that plays out what that looks like, how it reshapes our relationships as God's people, how it looks, how it's the kind of Trinitarian foundation for evangelism, you know, sharing, you know, here is the God who is relationship, here is the God who is invited in and through that flows out, you know, um, Trinity, we'll, we'll see it in discussion groups, so just a flag, um, I give way too much things to talk about in the discussion group, that's on purpose, in case you happen to be in a, in a group that's so tired, you, you know, you've, you've lost the will and capacity to speak, um, but for most groups I expect, yeah, there's too much in there, that's okay, it's a springboard, it's about the conversation and particularly to talk about, you know, where does the Trinity fit into our engagement with unbelievers, um, Dave and Nicole have been so helpful in helping us see that. Um, I do hope the rest of the conversation is equally helpful as you think about not hiding the Trinity away when it comes to uh, evangelism, but actually um, having the real God front and centre and talking about how great he is and, and he's so strange and yet wonderful. Um, and I trust as we look at the Spirit now, we will be, uh, our hearts will be um, set on fire. Let's pray. Lord and Father, we thank you for the God that you are, uh, not the God of our invention or creation, not the God we would have made up. Uh, thank you that you aren't that God. And thank you that you reveal yourself to us and we've had a chance this weekend not to um, exhaust you, uh, but to discover more of you, to, re- to reflect on and be refreshed by who you are. Father, we thank you for this time away. Thank you for the conversations that it's created uh, over our weekend as we've been talking not just about each other, we've been talking about you uh, and Father, we thank you that you reveal yourself, you act, you create, not, not for our sake, but for yours, uh, but for your glory's sake. We thank you for the way uh, you, Father, Son and Spirit, acts to bring glory to one another. And we pray uh, that as we spend time thinking uh, more about you, hearing from you, uh, that we'd be all the more thrilled to bring you the glory. And so speak to us, Father, not for our sake, not even for the sake of the lost, but ultimately that you might receive the glory you deserve. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you and I both know uh, that the spirit field don't emit a holy glow. Uh, we don't wear a halo. Those plates aren't there, on, you know, despite the advertising of stained glass windows. And so we can't spot the Holy Spirit's presence so simply. You know, and so, we're, you know, for many, uh, they need to answer, but struggle to answer how they would know God's spirit is within. Uh, how they struggle to know who's joined the divine dance. Uh, but we need that answer, don't we? We need to know that God's Spirit lives in us. Uh, Jesus says in John 3, picking up that reading we had from Ezekiel, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the Spirit. So born again, Spirit-filled believers are not just kind of a weird fringe group of the Christian uh, you know, church. No, no, they are the only category. Uh, Wolfhard Pannenberg who just has an awesome name, uh, a German theologian, he shares his experience of God's Spirit at 16. Um, he says, on a lonely two-hour walk home from my piano lesson. How's that for commitment to piano lessons? <laughs> Those who teach are just proud of him. 
Um, he's on this lonely two-hour walk home. He see, seeing an otherwise ordinary sunset, I was suddenly flooded by light, absorbed in a sea of light, which, although it did not extinguish the humble awareness of my finite existence, overflowed the barriers that normally separate us from the surrounding world. And there began a period of craving to understand the meaning of life, and since philosophy didn't seem to offer the ultimate answers to such a quest, I finally decided to probe the Christian tradition more seriously than I had considered worthwhile before. You go, wow, um, what a fantastic work of God, you know, bathed in light, connected in some way to the divine, stirring in him this desire to discover Christ. But you know, what if, like me, you don't have an experience like that and don't have a cracking story in that sense to speak of about God? Where, where does that leave us? Um, you know, if you struggle in that way to recognise him, you're not alone. Uh, the spiritual heritage of Christians in the 17th century New England uh, placed a high value on conversion experience as the testimony that spirit was present. And then after a few generations, they were stumped. How do you view those, those who, like some here, grew up in church life, grew up without a, a kind of radical change uh, in, and, and so therefore had no conversion story, so to speak of. And so one solution they came up with in Boston was a halfway covenant. Um, that is allowing these confessing believers to join church but not vote or take the Lord's Supper. And so this halfway covenant was the kind of half-pregnant view of the Spirit's presence, you know, leaving people as half-Christians as if it was possible, you know. Mindful of Jesus' words that you must be born again, it left many uncertain about eternity and confused about the Spirit. And there are some even today, we don't have a halfway covenant like that, but there are some who wrestle and kind of go, have I got the Spirit? How do I know the Spirit is working in me? And therefore, can I be certain I'm in God? And so to know the Spirit's presence with certainty, what we need to do is step behind our personal experience and see the Spirit, first of all, for who He is. And so as God reveals Himself again to us this morning, expect not only to be clear about the Spirit, but also where you stand with Him, confident to kind of feel His power in your heart rightly, able, able to see His work, His fruit in one another as we look around. Simple point. The Spirit is God's self-effacing power. If you have fallen asleep, let me remind you over the last couple of uh, days we've discovered God is this complex God. He is perfect relationship. Um, you know, and they've got those distinctive roles that bond their unity as one. It's the distinction that draws them together as one as they uh, dance together in that selfless giving. You know, God's benevolent authority leading the other selflessly, the Spirit transforming both humanity and the Godhead, um, selflessness throughout, but the Spirit is God's self-effacing power. Uh, in saying the Spirit is power, uh, don't miss here, I'm not saying um, he's an impersonal force, no, he's deeply personal. The Spirit is the distinct third person of the Trinity. Go back to the Athanasian Creed that I think we're going to go back to, Liam, if I got a little sense of where we're going. Um, just like calling God um, the Father, uh, authority doesn't depersonalise him, nor does calling the Spirit God's power reduce him to kind of some law of supernatural physics. Now, he's not in person. The Spirit is a person, not an it, but a he. Uh, and so Jesus speaks of his coming in John 15, not its coming, his coming. Um, and he is God's self-effacing power. And to break that down first, God the Spirit is self-effacing. So he always points to the Son and the Father for their glory. He never seeks or has it sought for himself. 
So the way the scripture speaks of the Spirit suggests his humility and his connection to both the Father and the Son, his dependence in that way. So in the New Testament, he is called the Holy Spirit a little less than a hundred times. But he's known as the Spirit of Jesus or the Spirit of God nearly 50. And the New Testament never speaks of the Father of the Spirit or the Son of the Spirit. That is, the Spirit doesn't act independently or for himself. Uh, He acts thoroughly dependently and he's happy to be in that place. And his goal is glorifying others by reinforcing their work. So he he applies um, the, the, the work of Christ to the individual, to the believer, to the church. He takes others' work and magnifies it. So John 14, verse 26. John 14, 26. Jesus says, The Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. Now, he's not there going, he will add more things, he will reveal what I have failed to tell you. No, no, no. He will take what I have told you and bring it to you. John 15, verse 26. Chapter later, 15, verse 26. When the counsellor comes, Jesus says, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. That is, he is sent by the Father and the Son to self-effacingly reinforce Jesus' works and words that Christ might be lifted up, glorified. Again, Jesus, John 16, verse 13 to 15. John 16, 13 to 15. When he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. Uh, He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. And that is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. Okay, so seeking glory for the Son, that is the pattern of the Spirit's work. He is entirely self-effacing. With that, secondly, the Spirit is God's power. His humility is not weakness. Don't confuse those two things of humility and weakness. Um, His humility is actually power and strength. The Nicene Creed, which we haven't done, uh, but, but you know, affirms, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. Okay, he's no diminishing power. Goes on, who proceeds from the, fow- from the Father and the Son, who together with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He's co-equal with God, not in any way less in power. Um, he is the Lord. He is the one who gives life, even as he doesn't seek glory for himself in that way. The, the Holy Spirit has the power. As Jesus says, John 6, verse 63, 6, verse 63, the Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. You know, the, the, the Hebrew word for spirit, ruach, is the same as breath. So um, he gives life because he is indivisibly linked to the word, just as breath is tied to speech. You, know, you, can't, you can't speak without exhaling breath. There's your morning tea challenge. Uh, try and speak without any breath coming out. You know, and just as you can't speak without breathing, the word cannot act without the spirit. So you can't have the Word and the Spirit functioning independently. They always go together. Uh, and the Holy Spirit with the Word gives life in this creation. So Genesis 1 verse 2, uh, the Spirit, God's breath, is hovering over the surface, surface of the deep. And as God speaks, the wonder of creation begins. And so Psalm 104 verse 30, uh, Psalm 104 verse 30 says, When you send your Spirit, they are created 
and renew the face of the earth. So it's not just at that kind of beginning point of creation, but that ongoing activity of work in this creation. Um, even in you know, human cultural expressions and achievements, we see something of the, life, the, the life-giving spirit's work. Um, but more so and more excitingly so, the spirit also has power to give life in the new creation. It is the spirit who powerfully applies the Godhead's work to the individual. So as Calvin points out, as long as Christ remains outside of me and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value. See, if I'm drowning, uh, I don't need to just know about a lifesaver's work. You know, I don't need to be able to kind of analyse and go, oh yeah, I understand how the physics of swimming functions. Uh, you know, no, 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 I need a lifesaver at my beach you know, dragging me to shore. Um, at every funeral, I proclaim Christ's victory over death and the riches of heaven. It is a wonderful message to share in the darkest time. But unless those who gather are in Christ, it does not benefit them. The Spirit powerfully gives life by uniting uh, be- you know, believers to Christ and his work. Um, as Jesus prays in John 17, 22 and 23, I told you John 17 is a key passage this weekend. He says, I have given them, believers, um, the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. We keep coming back here because we're to keep remembering it's the Spirit here who brings us into the life of God. Yeah, that new life that Jesus says was necessary in John 3, that we need to be born again by water and the Spirit, there it is. You know, and yet for all his power, the Spirit remains entirely humble. The Spirit is God's self-effacing power. It's what J.I. Packer helpfully calls flood life ministry. Um, Packer writes, I remember walking to a church one winter evening to preach on the words, He shall glorify me. Seeing the building floodlit as I turned the corner and realising this is exactly the illustration my message was needing. What a guy coming up with him on the way into the building. (laughs) (sighs) Uh, He goes on, when floodlighting is well done, the floodlights are placed so that you don't see them. You are not, in fact, supposed to see where the light is coming from. What you're meant to see is just the building on which the floodlights are trained. The intended effect is to make it visible when otherwise it wouldn't have been seen for the darkness and to maximise its dignity by throwing all its details into relief so you see it properly. This perfectly illustrates the Spirit's new covenant role. He is, so to speak, the hidden floodlight shining on the Saviour. Well, think of it this way, he says. It is if the Spirit stands behind us, throwing light over our shoulder on Jesus who stands facing us. And the Spirit's message is never, look at me, listen to me, come to me, get to know me, but always look at him, see his glory, listen to him, hear his word. Go to him and have life, get to know him and taste his gift of joy and peace. Can I say this, this is the the beauty, the Spirit really is quite subversive, having power but not wanting attention. We're so used to, aren't we, linking power with receiving attention and getting glory and thinking, oh, that's the place to be. Um, and can I say, if you've bought into pride in any form, um, and even in the church, we can bind to that, can't we? You know, that, that, that spiritual form of self-righteousness um, where you've stopped 
measuring yourself against God's standards just to look a little more virtuous in comparison to others. Um, you know, if you've bought into that kind of myth of pride, we have so much to learn from the Spirit. The Spirit subverts all that. He shows that power and humility go together. Humility, not presenting that you're less than you are, but considering others' situation before your own. It's knowing exactly how important you are, but treating others' needs as a higher priority. Uh, As Lewis puts it, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. And in doing so, when we do that, when we buy into the life of the Spirit, we discover happiness that we were made and saved for. Uh, Spurgeon explains the Holy Spirit's role in producing true joy. He says, It is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self to Jesus. But Satan's work is just the opposite of this. He's constantly trying to make us regard ourselves instead of Christ. And we shall never find happiness by looking at our prayers or our doings or our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. If we would at once overcome Satan and have peace with God, it must be by looking unto Jesus. So we might honour the Father by coming to him directly in prayer and acknowledging his authority. Uh, We might honour the Son by talking about him to others, but we honour the self-effacing power of the Spirit by heaping praise on Jesus and in turn the Father. Because that's his delight. So how do, you, how do you see the Holy Spirit? How do you know the Holy Spirit's in you? Well, it's when his character and work are evident in your life. So if, you, if you're self-effacingly acknowledging Christ and his power, then you have been united to him. The Spirit is at work. He is present and lively. And so can I give us three signs um, that we can look for of having experienced the Holy Spirit and looking for in the life of others that we might delight in his work. Illumination, fellowship and sanctification. Um, first, illumination of Jesus as Lord. you got the Spirit when you desire Jesus' glory ahead of your own. So the Spirit's desire is to floodlight Jesus and draw attention to his greatness and bring out features of his beauty. And he does that in our hearts, first of all, enabling us to acknowledge Jesus as Lord, not ourselves. And so he lights Christ up and we see Jesus as well as Saviour and we stop trying to earn favour with God and others. What a relief. And like a light switched on, the Spirit enables us to see Jesus in all his splendour, not as a a weak, burdened, broken, ineffectual, crucified criminal, but the victorious, risen, loving, compassionate Redeemer. Now, why is it the people I grew up with in youth group aren't all Christians? Yeah, they heard the same talks. It's not an intellectual issue. They were smart and capable. Um, But the human problem in knowing God is a moral and spiritual one. Romans 1, we naturally suppress the truth of God by our wickedness. He's there to be known. We don't want to know him by nature. John 3 talks about our preference for darkness. Light comes into the world, but we prefer darkness. We don't want to change our evil deeds. We don't want our shame and our guilt exposed when the true light of the world comes in. Now, my fellow Youth groupers aren't all Christians because they haven't had the Spirit's illuminating work bringing the Word to life. It's a reminder and underline that the Spirit is all about grace, not about our effort. We're dependent on Him entirely. Um, Augustine said you can't know things without a desire for them. You can't know things without a desire for them. And we can't hear God's Word unless we've been given inside a love for Him. And the Word and the Spirit are never separated. I cannot acknowledge Jesus as my Lord without hearing the Word, but I also need the Spirit-inspired Word to be illuminated in my life personally. And when you've had that, like the Spirit, your desire is for Jesus to get all the acclaim. Um, That's the illumination John the Baptist had. 
You know, thousands were flocking to John for his ministry. Uh, from all walks of life, people came and they were honouring him as a prophet. And at the height of his ministry, what's he do? He directs them, no, no, not at me, look at Jesus. Uh, it's the illumination the Olympian Eric Liddell received. Um, famously, he refused to run that preferred event in the 1924 Paris Olympics because it was held on a Sunday, the Lord's Sabbath, the Sabbath he kept in that way. Now, his actions drew criticism, but more importantly, it drew attention to Christ. Now, less famously, uh, though I hope we know this, he did serve as a missionary in China. He was imprisoned uh, by the Japanese in World War II. He gave away his chance for release to a pregnant woman uh, because life for him was not about comfort, it was about Jesus. It's the illumination we have experienced when we share with our friends, our co-workers, our our neighbours during the week the wonders of Jesus that we've discovered at a church camp or in our growth group. You see the Spirit's presence in your desire for Christ's glory, for him to get the fame ahead of you. And so if you call Jesus Lord and don't need the spotlight on you, you don't need to send a sage in your life, his Spirit's there. Praise God. Uh, Second sign, fellowship with God and others. You share God's passion and purpose. So the Holy Spirit enters and unites us personally and intimately to God and all his people. We're invited into, again I'll keep using that illustration of that perichoresis, the divine dance. We get to participate in the life of God, each doing their own thing. We do different things to God but we join in step with them. Uh, The Holy Spirit enters, brings us in in that way. He creates, this is fellowship. As uh, As Jesus says in John 14 verse 17, 14 verse 17, the world cannot accept him, meaning the spirit, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. He finds his life within us and invites us in that we might find our life in connection to God himself, to join in that self-effacing love. So he moves in to renovate as delights like you and me with all our inclinations to immorality and impurity and idolatry and anger and jealousy and he draws us into this uninhibited fellowship with God and, and the Father, he sends the Son who in turn sends the Spirit who unites us and takes us back into the Son uh, and, and, and in turn back to the Father and so there are no barriers because God himself slums it and lives in you and in me. Now he, he doesn't send a secondary creature like an angel. He, he makes us his children in Romans 8. He binds us to the Father as dependent imitators. Our joy is to have fellowship, a common mind, an unbreakable bond with God. See, fellowship is so much more a richer word than simply you know, the delight of morning tea after a service together. You know, the, the Bible uses fellowship um, as, as a description of our common passion in action. The, the, the Father, the Son and the Spirit's fellowship is, is created by their common passion to glorify each other uh, and to, to act together to express their love and bring others in. And, and that's the kind of fellowship that is real fellowship. It's action based on mutual selfless love. And the Spirit says, come on in and join in that love. It's not a mystical experience, fellowship with God. It's seen in concrete action. Jesus puts it in John 14, verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. But before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. And because I live, you also will live. And on that day, you will realise that I am in my Father. You are in me. I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. Get that? Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I too will love him and show myself to him. So the Spirit's um, active presence brings us into fellowship with others who are in him. 
you know, we talked about it yesterday in discussion group. Individualism is unchristian. Uh, across cultural, national, class ties, beyond geography. And, and it's not mystical unity, it's unity in, in purpose, in love, in care, in action. Um, you know, last weekend we had the annual Thanksgiving Day, we had a lunch, we prayed together, it was awesome. Uh, we gave to various partners, including, you know, ministry apprentices, like Eden. Um, you know, our, our fellowship with her uh, and others is not just a concept. It is action for a common purpose. Yes, it's financial, but it's prayers, it's conversations to see the gospel grow. It's having the same desire. Our lunch was great, but it is just a tiny part of real fellowship where we share in love and care and practice. And so if you share God's passion and purpose with others, there is the spirit. And thirdly, lastly, sanctification. Uh, To live more like Christ. Uh, you, your attitudes and actions grow more like God. So that the Spirit's ongoing work is to transform you, to sanctify you. Sanctification, setting you apart for some special purpose. And the Spirit sets us aside that we might be like our Lord. And the Spirit inside a believer enables you and me to do God's work. And whether that's with spectacular endowments, you know, like in Judges 14, when Samson is filled with the Spirit, he is given incredible strength for the moment to be God's, de- de- you know, the people, deliverer of God's people. You know, a momentary empowering to do something spectacular. Or, more often, the no less spectacular work of breaking my inclination and slavery to sin so that I can bear the fruit of selfless love. As Galatians 5 puts it, Galatians 5.13, You, my sisters and brothers, called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbour as yourself. And it flows on. What does that love look like? Love has content. It's not, you know, love is not just love is love. Love has a content. It has a character. It has a definition and a shape that God gives. What's it look like? The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, forbearance. Colin has to update his song. Um, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such there is no law. Keep in step with the Spirit. We're encouraged. Real spirituality defies the natural selfish ways of the flesh. Real spirituality is sharing the character of God. You know, that, that's the promise of Ezekiel 36, that people's uncleanness, our uncleanness would be washed away, a new heart, a new spirit, a new desire placed within that actually wants to obey God and know God and follow his ways perfectly. Uh, the spirit is working in us doing just that. Uh, Nicole Starling uh, invited her unbelieving neighbours around for dinner one time, wanting not just to share her life but also Jesus. And after a, a nice meal and a polite conversation, she got sheepish about her daughter, her young daughter at the time, declaring her favourite thing was Jesus you know, over dinner. And Nicole wondered, you know, reflecting on the fact that she felt a bit sheepish that her young enthusiastic daughter was so much more enthusiastic with these non-Christian neighbours than she was, uh, she, wondered, she wondered if she was trying to be like her neighbours to win them to Jesus or just be like her neighbours to fit in. Uh, It is a question of practical holiness. Uh, And so she shared four reflections that I'd suggest are helpful for us to wrestle with and see the Spirit's work in our life. Uh, She says, Maybe the main point of Paul being all things to all people to win some for me is not about trying to look and sound more like my neighbours when we sit around the table talking. Maybe it's simply about overcoming the kind of preferences and prejudices that would stop me from sitting around a table with them at all. That's what she's saying. Practical holiness is to be like a God and love the one who is completely different to you, not becoming them. There's the Spirit's work. 
She had another reflection. Maybe I've been hiding behind all things to all people as an excuse for not obeying let your light shine before others. She's saying practical holiness is standing out as morally and ethically different with different loves and values. The third reflection, maybe I should focus a bit more on having dinner with the neighbours more often and focus a bit less on trying not to look like the Flanders family when I do. Um, That is, practical holiness overcomes the fear of standing out and and just gets in to serve. And a fourth reflection, maybe I should should pay a bit more attention to loving my neighbours and paying a little less attention to looking like them. That, That practical holiness focuses on the other, not the self. That's the Spirit's work. And, you know, the Spirit works to sanctify, making us more like Christ. And can I suggest, if you, like Nicole, are just wrestling with what it means to live like God in this world, there is the Spirit within. So Jesus says, no one can enter the kingdom unless he's born of the water of the Spirit. Praise God for his self-effacing power within and amongst us. Let me pray. Our Lord and Father, we give you thanks and praise for sending the Spirit into us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for him and his wonderful work. We thank you for his tremendous power to give life and new life. We thank you for his desire not to uh, receive the glory but rather give the glory. We thank you for the way that that frees us to not have a floodlight, a spotlight on ourselves but rather to delight in bringing the attention to your Son, the Lord Jesus. And Father, we thank you for the evidence, the fruit of the Spirit who is present amongst us. We've talked about it already this morning. We've seen it all weekend. We pray that he might work powerfully, continue to change us to be more and more like you. Father, we thank you for him and his work and may you pour him out, not just on our church family but on our lost city. In Jesus' name, Amen.